0: We read about the martyrs for Christ in Revelation 6, verses 9 to 11. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then a white robe was given to each of them, and it was said to them, that they should rest a little while longer, until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren, who would be killed as they were, was completed. Welcome to Souls Under the Altar, a program that reviews the stories of gods persecuted from the past and the present. Your host for this program is Etienne McClintock.
1: One of the unexpected characteristics of the biblical record of Jesus' life and the spread of the gospel is the honesty of those recording the events. Mark, also known as John Mark, signed his gospel with a peculiar footnote in chapter 14 where he describes what is quite likely his own experience during Jesus' arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane. We read in Mark chapter 14, verse 51 and 52. Now, a certain young man followed him, having a linen cloth thrown about his naked body. And the young men laid hold of him, and he left the linen cloth and fled from them naked. John Mark's qualifications for writing his gospel and having it included in the canon of scripture has typically been based on the tradition that he heard many sermons preached by Peter and ended up writing these accounts of Jesus' ministry down, creating the gospel of Mark. However, events like the one mentioned in Mark 14 and the fact that Mark's home in Jerusalem was used as a gathering place for the early church certainly places this young disciple in the center of history as someone who was well acquainted with the life of Jesus. The concise and almost breathless formats of Mark's gospel, his favorite connecting phrase is, and then combines all the action of a storyteller's style with a young man's eagerness to get the story told. Mark knew the people about whom he was writing. He may not have been part of all the events, but his personal awareness of the participants gives his gospel a ring of authenticity. As a young man at the time of Jesus' resurrection, Mark still had a long life ahead of him. Some of this learning trajectory was recorded by Luke in Acts. Mark's cousin Barnabas and his mother Mary were recognizable figures in the early church. Barnabas is one of the first who brought Mark and Paul together shortly before the first missionary journey out of the church of Antioch. Although Paul and Barnabas were specifically sent out by the church, we read in Acts chapter 13 and verse 5 that they also had John as their assistant. The first missionary journey of Paul and Barnabas was crammed with activity. They encountered many hardships and privations and were beset with dangers on every side. In the towns and cities through which they passed and along the lonely roads... They were surrounded by many perils. However, Paul and Barnabas had learned to trust God's power to provide, protect, and deliver. Their hearts were filled with a deep love for the lost they were seeking to save. Like faithful shepherds who were searching for their lost sheep, they did not consider their own ease or convenience in the pursuit of their God-given mission. They were forgetful of self, and did not deviate from their mission even when they were worn out by their ministry and a lack of sleep. They often went without food and endured the cold of winter. Paul and Barnabas were not distracted by any of these factors. They had but one object in view. It was the salvation of those who had wandered far from the fold. It was at this time that Mark, overwhelmed with fear and discouragement, wavered for a time in his purpose to give himself wholeheartedly to the Lord's work. Not being used to these hardships, he became discouraged by the dangers and privations of the way. He had labored very successfully under favorable circumstances, but now, finding himself in the midst of opposition and dangers that so often accompany the pioneering work, he struggled to endure these unfamiliar hardships as a soldier of the cross." He was unaccustomed to facing danger, persecution, and adversity. And as the apostles advanced forward in their work with the expectation that the hardships would not abate and even greater difficulties were to be expected, Mark became intimidated by it all. Losing courage, he refused to go any farther and returned to the comfort he was accustomed to in Jerusalem. This desertion by Mark called Paul to judge him unfavorably and even severely for a time. Barnabas, on the other hand, was inclined to excuse him because of his inexperience. Barnabas felt anxious that Mark would not abandon the ministry. He saw in Mark natural qualities and God-given abilities that would fit him to be a useful worker for Christ. In the years that followed, his care and consideration for Mark and his encouragement of the young man was richly rewarded. As Mark matured, he gave himself unreservedly to the Lord and to proclaim the gospel message in difficult fields. Under the blessing of God and the wise training of Barnabas, he developed into a valuable worker. And after a stint with Barnabas, we read in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 13, that Mark spent time traveling with the apostle Peter. These various apprentice trips took him from Jerusalem to Antioch and to Rome. Paul was afterward reconciled to Mark and received him as a fellow laborer. He also recommended him to the Colossians as one who was a fellow worker unto the kingdom of God and that Mark was a comfort to him as recorded in Colossians chapter 4 and verse 11. And Paul again, not long before his own death, spoke of Mark as profitable to him for the ministry in 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 11. Mark had become a capable evangelist in his own right. More than that, He left a lasting legacy by writing this gospel record of the life of Jesus. We are told that Mark had a long-standing connection with the city of Alexandria in Egypt. He was instrumental in founding and nurturing the church there. As is often the case, the good news about Jesus was bad news for the pagan religions and those who would continue with these lifeless forms of worship in those communities. No doubt it would have been a matter of days from his arrival in Alexandria before Mark would have attracted the attention of the pagan religious leaders. Although years passed before they took any action, a mob eventually exercised their demonic energies against him. Mark was tied with ropes, hooks may also have been used, and dragged him through the cobblestone streets of Alexandria until his body was ripped, wounded, and badly injured. After a night in prison, the same treatment was repeated until Mark died. Although the crowd intended to burn Mark's body, there is a persistent account that a storm delayed the process and allowed other Christians a chance to retrieve his body and burn his remains. Next, we take a brief look at the story of the Apostle Peter. Simon, the son of John, grew up in Capernaum on the north end of the Sea of Galilee. Raised along with his brother Andrew in a fishing family, Simon seemed headed for a career in that business. That is until Jesus came along the shore and invited Simon to follow him into a life of fishing for men. Simon accepted both the invitation and the new name given to him by Jesus. This name was Cephas and means a stone. We read about this first encounter between Jesus and Peter in John chapter 1 and verse 42. And Andrew brought him to Jesus. Now when Jesus looked at him, he said, You are Simon, the son of Jonah. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated a stone. Some might be asking, how is it that Simon is called Cephas here and in other places he is called Peter? Well, Cephas is the Aramaic word and means a stone, as we read in John chapter 1, verse 42. And Petros is the Greek equivalent. Both of them mean a stone. In fact, the word Petros can also mean a rolling stone. Apart from this initial encounter with Simon when Jesus made him Cephas or Peter... We also read of another encounter where Jesus used Peter's name and linked it to a biblical truth that has been misunderstood by quite a number of people. We read concerning this exchange between Jesus and Peter in Matthew chapter 16 and verse 18, where Jesus said, And I say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. On the surface some have interpreted that Jesus was saying that he was going to build his church on Peter who they assume is the rock that Jesus referred to. The Apostle Paul who was very familiar with the Old Testament and writing a few decades after this conversation with Peter makes it clear in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 3 and 4 where he says concerning the children of Israel they all ate the same spiritual food. And all drank the same spiritual drink For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them And that rock was Christ Well some might say that there could be more than one rock in the Bible And just maybe Jesus conferred a Peter equal status to himself Or perhaps Jesus went as far as transferring the status of being the foundation of the church to Peter here on earth While he was the rock in heaven so to speak Well, let's go to the Old Testament to learn what Paul, Peter, and the other apostles all knew. Reading from Isaiah chapter 44, verse 6, and also verse 8, we read, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first, and I am the last. Besides me there is no God. Verse 8, Do not fear, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from that time and declared it? You are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? Indeed, there is no other rock. I do not know one. So, what is God saying here regarding the meaning of being the rock? God asks the question Is there a God besides me? And then proceeds to answer his own question. This answer is just as profound as his question. To answer the question, Is there a God besides me? God says, Indeed, there is no other rock. The rock of the Old Testament is God. And further to that, God says that He does not know any other rock. It is only Him. Now, some might be asking, Did you not previously say that Jesus is the Old Testament rock? Well, yes, I did. Well, actually, not really me. I was simply quoting the Apostle Paul. So then how can both Jesus and the Father be the rock? The answer comes from the same passage in Isaiah where we have just read. I want you to pay close attention to this. Isaiah chapter 44 verse 6. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me there is no God. So who is speaking here? Well it's clear it is God But who else is speaking? God says, thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and His Redeemer So the Redeemer is also speaking Both divine beings say that they are the first and they are the last And besides them there is no God So there are two divine beings speaking in this passage First we have the Lord, the King of Israel And second, we have his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. The Redeemer can only be one person, and that is Jesus Christ. The word Lord is translated from the Hebrew word Yahweh or Jehovah, or as it referred to at the Tetragrammaton, the the Jews never actually pronounced that word. But the word YHWH means the eternal self-existent one. Both divine persons are called by this name Yahweh or Jehovah. The first is the Lord or the self-existent one, the King of Israel. The second is the Redeemer who is also the Lord, the self-existent one, the Lord of hosts. With this in mind, I want us to go back to the exchange between Peter and Jesus and look at the conversation in its context. We will start our reading in verse 13 of Matthew 16. When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? So they said, Some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Please keep in mind that Jesus was the Christ, and this was not a new revelation to the disciples. There was something else about the statement of Peter that solicited the response from Jesus to his statement. And we read in the Gospel of John that Andrew, Peter's brother, had already told him When he first met Jesus, that he had found the Messiah, or the Christ. And we read this in John chapter 1, verse 40 to 42. One of the two who heard John speak, that's John the Baptist, and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. And he first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which is translated the Christ. And Andrew brought Simon to Jesus. That Jesus was the Christ, that he was the Messiah, was no new revelation to Peter or the disciples. To what was it then about Peter's statement that made Jesus say that flesh and blood, in other words, human beings, had not revealed this to Peter? If it was not the Messiah statement, it can only be this insight revealed to Peter by God the Father that Jesus the Christ was the Son of the living God. It was the revelation that Jesus was divine, that he was the Son of God, that was made known to Peter by God the Father. It was on this rock, this divine rock, which is the divinity of Christ, that the church was to be built. So let's read on and see if this understanding is supported by the biblical text. Reading from Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. And I also say to you that you are Peter, which is the Greek word for Petros. And on this rock, which is the Greek word Petra, I will build my church. And the gates of Hades or the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. We know that the gates of hell has never and will never prevail against Jesus. But this has not been the case with Peter. We only have to read a few more verses further to see that Satan did prevail with Peter. In fact, Satan was now speaking through Peter to discourage Jesus from fulfilling his mission. Reading from Matthew chapter 16 and verse 21, And from that time Jesus began to show to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it for you, Lord, that this shall happen to you. But Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. So within a matter of a few verses, after Jesus said that the gates of hell will not prevail against the rock, The gates of hell momentarily prevailed against Peter. No human being can make the claim that he is the rock that the church is built on. This is because no human being other than the divine incarnate Son of God, Jesus Christ, is God in the fullest sense. No human being can make the claim that he is the rock that the church is built on. This is because no human being other than the incarnate Christ is divine and God in the fullest sense. For three years, Peter was Jesus' constant companion. Peter understood who the foundation of the church was when he wrote in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4 to 6, coming to Jesus as to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious You also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Therefore, it is also contained in the Scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, that is, a chief cornerstone which is the foundation, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. In the biblical record, Jesus' first and last words to Peter were, Follow me, as recorded in Mark chapter 1 verse 17 and John chapter 21 verse 22. History tells us that Peter did just that. From the out of the way shores of Galilee to the center of the world's hallways of Rome, Peter followed Jesus. From laying down his nets, to laying down his life, Peter learned and practiced fishing for men. It remains clear that Peter is one of our finest examples of what it means to be a martyr. He lived a full life and he died a faithful death for Christ. Given the leading role that Peter had among the disciples and in the early church, it is interesting to see how faithfully the gospel record his fumbling efforts The disciples as a group neither comprehended what Jesus was doing or why and Peter usually made public their lack of understanding. His impulsive nature allowed him to sometimes blurt out the truth but more often to state the mistake. The gospel writers could have easily shaped the stories of Jesus' ministry days in order to make the first leaders of the church more heroic. They resisted this temptation. Instead, they gave us the truth, God's Word. They gave us a count into which we can fit ourselves. The ordinary people who spend time with Jesus are people with whom we can relate. The fact that they became apostolic witnesses simply reminds us that God desires also to do something through us in order to bring glory to His name. when it comes to Peter's missionary efforts, the first 12 chapters of Acts record the exciting events of the initial years of the movement that began with Jesus' command to make disciples throughout the world. Peter's first sermon on the day of Pentecost seemed to have opened the floodgates of new believers, but the spread of the gospel was at first limited to the Jews and proselytes, that is, those Gentiles who had become naturalized Jews. God used Peter's visit to a Roman soldier's house to confirm Jesus' inclusion of people from every nation as candidates for the kingdom of heaven. Cornelius became the test case for Gentile conversions. Peter departs the Acts account suddenly in chapter 12. He had just been miraculously freed from prison and had briefly visited the believers who were gathered together praying for him at Mary's house. They had prayed for Peter's safety, and God had answered by having Peter knock at the door. Because he was technically a prison escapee, Peter's life was in added danger. Luke notes Peter's parting message in Acts chapter 12, verse 17. But motioning to them with his hand to keep silent, he declared to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, Go tell these things to James and to the brethren. And he departed and went to another place. The other place where Peter went has been the subject of both tradition and legend in support of Peter's ministry in Babylon, which is another name for Rome. And we have the apostles' apparent location mentioned in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 13. She who is in Babylon elect together with you, greet you, and so does Mark, my son. In support of Pete's ministry in Rome, we have the obvious case that he did end up in Rome and was martyred there. It has often been noted that when Jesus and Peter walked on the shore of Galilee for the last time, the Lord not only reinstated his call on Peter's life, but he also gave Peter an inkling of the end that awaited him. We read in John chapter 21 from verse 18 and 19, Most assuredly I say to you, When you were younger, you girded yourself and walked where you wished. But when you were old, you will stretch out your hands and another will gird you and carry you to where you do not wish. This he spoke signifying by what death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, Follow me. It is not where we go and what happens to us that matters all that much. What does matter is how we respond when Jesus comes to us and says, Follow me. Peter's final days in Rome were not ascribed in the Scriptures. Peter's final days in Rome were not described in the Scriptures, but various traditions' accounts have survived. Reportedly, he spent horrific months in the infamous Mamertine prison, a place where incarceration was often itself a death sentence. Though manacled and mistreated, Peter survived the tortures and apparent communicated the gospel effectively to his guards. Eventually, he was hauled out of the dungeon, taken to near a circus, and there crucified upside down because Peter did not consider himself worthy to be crucified with his head upward like Jesus. Thank you for joining me on Souls Under the Altar. I look forward to catching up with you again next time. Until then, may God richly bless you.
0: Thank you for joining us on Souls Under the Altar. If you'd like more information about today's program or if you have any questions, please contact 3ABN Australia Radio by phoning 0249733456 or you can send an email to radio at 3abnaustralia.org.au. You can also contact us on our 3ABN Australia Radio Facebook page. We'd love to hear from you.